It was a chaotic scene at the airport in Kabul last August as the U.S. military pulled out and Afghans attempted to flee. Since then, more than 79,000 Afghans have come to the U.S., 2,500 of them to Illinois, while many others wait for visas to be able to come to this country. And for those who did make it here, the future is far from certain. We talked with CM Pasarlai, who's a recent Afghan refugee, an office manager at the Muslim Women Resource Center, and Seema Qureshi, founder and executive director of that center. And I started by asking CM about what the past year has been like for him. Leaving Afghanistan was the most challenging experience in my life. I never, ever wanted to leave my beloved country. I would love to be in Afghanistan. I wanted to be part of the change in Afghanistan. And I never, ever expect the such condition and such real transformation of power. The Taliban will come back and they will take over the power. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Even I could not imagine that such situation will happen in the future. So when the Taliban took over, uh, I was in Kabul for uh, five days. I was struggling, trying to leave the country. Uh, I was not thinking about my car. I was not thinking about my my, my belongings, my business, nothing. I was just thinking to survive and how to escape from the violence from Afghanistan. And I was struggling to be alive. So. Then I left Afghanistan by the support of uh, U.S. Uh, Marines and armies. When when I came, so I was at the military base for five months, and then I came to Chicago. It took almost eight months that I was struggling to settle in Chicago. Uh, during this time, I had bad time in in in, uh, in, uh, in, in military base. My family were, were they were struggling. I apartheid from my family, my wife and kids. They were in India. Then my father, mother, and rest of the siblings were in Afghanistan. And I, I was one one man army for my family. I wow. was uh, feeding uh, my family, so they need financial support. And I was at the military base. So it was the toughest time. It was very bad experience for me. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, finally, I settled in Chicago. Uh, so in Chicago, I'm, I'm, physically, I'm very good. But mentally, I'm not in peace. I still miss my family. Every second, every minute, I miss my daughter, my wife, and my son that I haven't seen. He's eight months old, but I haven't seen him. Wow. I, I can only imagine. Uh, you know, for those who may have missed it, you know, you said you, you were able to leave Afghanistan, as we know, but your family wasn't able to get out. They're in hiding. Your six-year-old daughter is still there. Um, you also have a new uh, infant son that you have not met yet. How... Are you processing that, and are you have you talked to your six year old daughter? What are conversations with her like? Oh, oh, oh my God, it is it is very difficult. Whenever I think, when I whenever I talk with my daughter, she's very smart. She was telling me like, "Hey, Baba, you don't miss me." I said, "Why not?" Then she was telling me, "If you miss me, why you don't invite me? Why you don't send me the visa? Oh why gosh. you don't send me a ticket?" I was telling her that the, uh, there is no airplane. Uh, so she had no answer. Then in the morning, she called me back and she was telling me, hey, Baba, you are such a liar. I said, why? What's wrong, my honey? 
she was telling that I I saw airplane crossing our home. So you told me there is no airplane. There is airplane. So invite me. I would like to come there. I oh want to gosh. meet you. I want to play with you. I want to go to school. So I want you, but you don't miss me. Oh my God! Like this was such a such a bad condition for me. I had no words to express, and I I had nothing to say to my this innocent daughter. And and she she's right. She she would like love to be with me. She would love to go to school, and she deserved to go to school. She deserved to learn, and 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 it is her right that I should be with her, and 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 uh, I should play with her. But it is difficult the, the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's me and my family, my daughter, especially my wife. My wife, she was a media analyst. She was uh, uh, the human rights activist in Afghanistan. But now she's the victim. She's traveling. She, she's hiding here and there. Oh, boy. Heartbreaking stuff, Seema. Uh, these stories, they are all too common. Uh, tell us what else you are hearing from, from refugees who fled Afghanistan in the past year, Seema. Natasha, more than 95% of the people who we provide services, um, they have been separated from their families during their, their evacuation from Afghanistan. You know, um, as much as the government has helped having a roof over their head and a job to start, the work is not even close to done. Chicago is a safe haven for Afghan refugees, but they're still living in hell because they're they have been separated from their families. The story of Siam is the story of every Afghan that comes to me. The story of Siam is the story of every father that's crying for their children to come to the United States. You know, from the day one, as you know, we, we had our first interview, um, you know, we had unaccompanied children that came to Chicago. And I would go and help them and here with their with the services at Heartland, and they would just hold my leg and say, we don't want anything. We want our moms to come. And they will hold me. They will hug me. They will say that you smell like my mom. So these are the stories that it's so sad for wow. Afghans that, you know, no matter how much we want to provide, how much our local government is trying to help, how much is our not other not-for-profit organizations and resettlement partners are trying to support, but the work is not done because, you know, we cannot bring, you cannot make a family happy if their family members are not with them. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we are marking the one-year anniversary since the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan and the disarray that this has caused for people like our guest, CM Passerlai, who's an Afghan refugee who came to Chicago earlier this year. And we're also talking with Seema Qureshi, who's executive director of the Muslim Women Resource Center. Seema, women are blocked from working in, in most sectors. What are your thoughts on this? You know, um, Sasha, when the whole world turned their back on Afghans and on Afghan women, what there is no questions to be answered. The whole world turned their back on Afghan women and Afghan children. Education is a basic human right, and we all should have it. And we need we need the American government, we need the United Nations to support uh, the Afghan women and Afghan children because every day they're losing their education. Seema, what kinds of services do people most commonly ask for? So uh, one of the pressing needs for Afghan refugees that came 
Uh, now the rental uh, lease is done, and now they have to find apartments for themselves. And it is so difficult for them because they don't have co-signers to sign them, and they don't have a good, cre- they don't have no credit, um, so that they can get an apartment. So that is a struggle for Afghan refugees here in Chicago. Um, rental assistance is so important for Afghan refugees because. You know, Siam is great. He has found over 700 refugees' jobs. But the, the issue is that those jobs that they're working, they're minimum wage, and they don't make that much. So uh, they are spending 70% of their income on rent. So one issue is that, you know, rental um, is so expensive in Chicago. The second issue is that the lease is over, and they have to find apartments for themselves. And... Um, Finding apartment means that they have to find a co-signer because they don't have any credit to apply on their own. Uh, and that is like a big struggle for Afghan refugees. Yeah. How are you recommending right now, Seema, that, that people take care of their mental health after dealing with all of this uncertainty? Right. So, um, you know, when we, we were running a state lab program when the Afghan refugees came. Um, it's called SPA. And um, at the hotel, we realized that mental health was the biggest issue. So we made few phone calls to the IDHS. Secretary Graceful was so incredible. And when we talked to her about this, she automatically said, let's start mental health program for Afghan refugees. So uh, we're working with DePaul University, and DePaul University is the, took on the leadership because we don't have any therapist who speaks Dari or Pashto, but we have interpreters. So they come and they do um, sessions, group sessions, which is so uh, powerful and so helpful for Afghan refugees. But in the meantime, you know, no matter what we do, how we try, how much we support them, their mental health is draining because their families are not here. They're missing their children. They're missing their parents. Uh, That is like the biggest issue. We're not asking for them to bring their married brother and sister. We're asking the government to help us bring their family members, immediate family members, their children, their underage children are missing. Help us um, get the approval of the Afghan Adjustment Act. Such an important uh, bill for Afghans to pass. Yeah, the... um... The Afghan Adjustment Act would provide a, a path to permanent status for these refugees. Right, and they can bring in their families. Yeah. And also the family reunification, which many people were separated from their families due to the chaos in Kabul. In almost one year, uh, we just had a family that um, his daughter, his seven-year-old daughter came last week, and you should have seen the, the speaking of mental health, this, this family was going through so much. But once they had their family, their kids uh, came. And the way she, he was telling me that when he had his seven-year-old daughter, all the pain was gone. Mm. So he says, you guys gave us the whole world. And, and being a mother myself, I can feel the pain of the parents, what they're going through. Whether it's young or a, a single mom or another parent. Siam, you were given humanitarian parole. Can you explain what that is? A two-year visa, conditional visa that we are uh, living in the U.S., but still uh, we need to apply for the asylum or we need to apply for the HIV. Do I'm eligible for the HIV? I applied for the HIV 
that took me more than one year. Still, the result is not clear. And I applied for the asylum. And like two and a half months ago, I had an interview. Still, uh, nothing uh, is clear, pending. Mm -hmm. It is more than a year that uh, we are we are facing with unclear future. Our future is not clear. We don't know what will happen. Our other friends, roommates, and the people who are around, they are thinking that, okay, the U.S. might send us back to Afghanistan. So if they send us back, what will happen? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that we came to the U.S. The government passed the Afghan Adjustment Act in also to finalize and expedite the family reunification. That was very nice. The wife and kids, they have all the documents. They have their passport. They have... Uh, we have the certificate of marriage, and my wife worked with the U.S. government. I did, um, but the only problem is the visa, that if the government issued the visa, I can have my family in Chicago, and we can restart our life here. Yeah, and uh, you were mentioning SIV there earlier. That's a special immigrant visa, for those who may not know. Um, and, and see, um, there's also an ongoing food crisis. You know, it's caused in part because the World Bank revoked the credentials of the Central Bank of Afghanistan after yes. the Taliban so, came to power. Uh, this means, I want to make sure that folks understand, this means that Afghan banks, they can't access cash, and that's yes. putting a strain on the supply chain. And it also impacts uh, the ability of Afghans who are outside of Afghanistan to send money back home. You worked for the World Bank. Talk about how this affects people. I swear, believe me, uh, like I have more than 152,000 followers in Facebook. I don't answer the Facebook messages. I changed my WhatsApp number because I was receiving the messages that try. People are trying. People are sending their families uh, pictures, their kids' message, and, and pictures. They were telling me and asking me that we would like to sell these people. We cannot have them. We cannot feed them. Uh, we don't have anything. They are about to die. So hunger will kill us. Please find us anyway, support us, and what, whatever I could, I, I was supporting, but I'm also one-man army for my family. I don't have anything, and the Taliban blocked my all money in Afghanistan. I have, I had some amount of money in the bank, but they blocked my MasterCard bank account. That's but so much pressure. I, oh, boy. Sorry? That's so much pressure on you. It's pressure. We are not okay. The situation in Afghanistan that affects us negatively. My, my my sister, she she was the first position in the whole school. She was she wanted to be a medical doctor. She's calling me and asking me, brother, I wanted to be a medical doctor. I wanted to have good position, but now what should I do? I'm at home. I got depression. I cannot go outside. I cannot proceed my studies. What is life? What does life mean? What should I do here? Do you have any solution? So she's almost innocent. I don't have any, any words to them. Mm -hmm. I cannot support them as a human, but I'm, that's just one thing I can do. I cry with them. Yeah. I just cry with them. Like my family condition is similar to all other Afghans, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. wow, wow. That, that situation, to be honest, that situation is unhuman and we are extremely in, 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 a, in a very bad crisis i have no words no words to explain the condition sima how yes. can people help how can people help of course of course so um uh, i think one thing that siam forgot is that there's flooding going on in 
several provinces of Afghanistan, and people are becoming homeless, um, and there is no food in Logar and Paktia and other areas of Afghanistan that we're trying to help them. Um, that is one thing. The other issue that we have in Afghanistan is that we cannot send money. No matter what we want, I have a satellite office in Afghanistan, and so far since Taliban came, we cannot do anything there mm -hmm. because uh, all my staff members were a female, and now they're sitting at home doing nothing. Um, whatever they're doing is on voluntarily basis. And we need to approve that the Afghan Adjustment Act, bringing the children, the parents of these kids who are here to United States. Um, here in Chicago, the refugees, are two things that they need is rental assistance or, you know, affordable housing and also employment. These are the two things that they need. Um, in Afghanistan, the only way we can do, we can help them, there are some international organizations like, like IRC, um, Red Cross, that we can donate um, to, um, to victims so that they can get uh, food and shelter. Wow. We'll have to leave it there for now. We've been speaking with Seema Qureshi and Siam Pasarlai of the Muslim Women Resource Center. Thank you both for making the time for us. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the United States pulling out of Afghanistan. Now, we just heard the difficulty and emotional turmoil that's caused since there isn't an easy path to getting a visa to come to the U.S. from Afghanistan. So how could this program work better? Well, some refugee advocates say that the way the U.S. government streamlined the visa process for Ukrainian refugees shows that it is possible for this process to be smoother and that it's in stark contrast to the hoops Afghans have to jump through to be admitted into the country. Here to give us insight into this is Adam Bates. He's a policy counsel and refugee lawyer with the International Refugee Assistance Project that provides legal support to refugees across the globe. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Which are the main visas that Afghans have received? Um, well, uh, technically, some of these are not visa programs, but the there are, the one visa program that most people probably have heard of will be the, the Special Immigrant Visa Program or uh, the SIB program for uh, Afghans who um, provided, quote-unquote, faithful and valuable service to the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. So these are primarily folks who um, worked as interpreters and translators or uh, worked in some other way directly supporting uh, the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Um, there are also um, there's a what's called a priority two refugee program that uh, is for Afghans who worked for uh, NGOs and and um, and other U.S. government agencies. Uh, and then there's the humanitarian parole uh, program, which which people can apply for as individuals. So theoretically, all of these pathways um, have have been open for Afghans, but in in practice, uh, that they've they've been very narrow, uh, and for a lot of Afghans, there there simply has not been uh, a viable pathway to safety in the U.S. Yeah. Well, let's dig into a couple of the things that you just mentioned, Adam. First, the humanitarian parole. What are the limits there? 
Um, so humanitarian parole is uh, is part of our immigration law that allows um, people who otherwise don't have visas uh, to to come to the U.S. Uh, and remain temporarily in the U.S. Uh, in lawful status. Uh, it does not convey. It does not automatically convey uh, benefits such as resettlement assistance or uh, um, authorization to work. Uh, it's just a, it's a basically a, a safety valve in our immigration law that allows the president. Um, to to allow people into the United States um, if if the other visa pathways are not uh, are not viable. Um, so this has been used throughout history, uh, especially in this context of uh, following U.S. withdrawals. Um, so it was used in in the Vietnamese context. It's been used uh, repeatedly throughout throughout the decades of U.S. Uh, military involvement uh, in other countries. Uh, but this process uh, requires an individual and a sponsor to apply to the U.S. government and is basically asking the government in its discretion to allow you um, to enter the country. Um, so the, the problem that there has been for Afghans is that for a lot of Afghans, especially people who aren't qualified for the SIV program, um, humanitarian parole was essentially the only the only pathway that was made available to them. Um, but since and since uh, August of last year, tens of thousands, I think somewhere around 50,000 Afghans have applied uh, for parole to the United States. And by and large, the uh, the Biden administration has they have not processed the vast majority of these applications at all, uh, and of the applications they have processed, uh, they've rejected an overwhelming number of them, mm-hmm. uh, citing uh, policies the Biden administration has taken towards Afghan parole uh, applicants that uh, are basically impossible for Afghans to meet. Well, to that end, Adam, we know that there are a lot of refugees from around the world, but two places that have major refugee programs right now are Ukraine and Afghanistan. So. For the purposes of this conversation, we're going to focus on comparing the response to aid given to refugees from both of those countries. So first, can you describe what United for Ukraine does? Sure. So it actually segues well from from your previous question, because the the Uniting for Ukraine program uh, is also uh, using the president's humanitarian parole authority. So so this is not a visa program. It's not part of the U.S. refugee program. Uh, It is uh, granting humanitarian parole to individual uh, Ukrainian nationals and and their family members uh, who have sponsors in the U.S., um, and I, I think so. This is essentially the same power that I just described that is not functioning for Afghans. Uh, but in the case of Uniting for Ukraine, the administration has, in a much shorter time period, um, brought many thousands more Ukrainians to the United States. I think something in the in the range of forty to fifty thousand Ukrainians have already arrived um, through this program. And in in that. In a much longer time period, going all the way back to August of last year, I think the uh, Afghans who've been granted parole has been something around 300. So um, there, there's there's just a, a huge asymmetry uh, in terms of how the administration is using its discretion around this parole authority. And, and let's be clear, Adam, you are not advocating for Ukrainians not to have this pathway, right? 
absolutely not. I, I think it's it's um, there's there's no question that uh, that Ukrainians were displaced and that there was a, a huge humanitarian uh, protection need for Ukrainians. And in in fact, in in many ways, um, this uniting for Ukraine situation uh, program is one of the more one of the smoother and more efficient uh, 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 VR uh, parole uh, refugee type programs that the U.S. government uh, has devised. So I think it's a lot of the innovations that they've used to make this program so functional uh, are great. Um, and, and obviously, we don't want to make things worse for Ukrainians, but, but the, the asymmetry between how easily and smoothly and, and uh, quickly uh, Ukrainians are being paroled into the United States uh, stands in, in very stark contrast to how the administration is treating uh, Afghans who are in, in basically a, a, a very close, closely similar situation, mm -hmm. uh, and, and not just Afghans, but it's really, um, it, it really just stands out in terms of uh, the, the glacial pace of refugee resettlement uh, for folks all over the world, not just Afghans. But with Uniting for Ukraine and with uh, Afghan H, uh, humanitarian parole applications, you just have this very clear apples-to-apples -apples comparison that we don't often get in immigration policy, and yeah. it just makes the uh, – uh, the asymmetry between the administration's treatment of these of these two groups of people um, that much more brazen. And speaking of the application, that the fees are different, right? Uh, yes, for uh, for if you are an Afghan uh, and you apply for humanitarian parole to the United States, the the fee is five hundred and seventy five dollars uh, per person, not not per family. So, uh, an Afghan family of eight that applies uh, for humanitarian parole is is paying forty six hundred dollars. Uh, and this, I mean, I mean, this is a, also a country where the the GDP per capita is about five hundred dollars a year. Uh, for uniting for Ukraine, there there are no fees. It, it's a it's a free application for Ukrainians, and in fact, Ukrainians who had applied for parole prior to the announcement of the program um, actually had the the fees that they had already paid refunded to them. So I, again, it's just clear that a lot of the logistical and and bureaucratic hurdles that were thrown in the in the way of Afghans uh, seeking safety, mm -hmm. the administration found ways around those those obstructions for for Ukraine Ukrainians. And the, the U.S. government has said that this is not a fair comparison and that United for Ukraine should be compared to Operation Allies Welcome. So what do you say to that? Well, I would think it's it's unclear why that these are both just parole programs. The Afghans applying for parole and Ukrainians applying for parole through um, Uniting for Ukraine. Um, there was no uniting for Afghanistan. The, the reason Afghans have had to avail themselves individually of this process is because the administration did not create uh, a, a uniting for Afghan program that, that um, made this process smoothly uh, and efficiently. And in, in terms of the Afghans who were evacuated from Afghanistan, I mean, that's, that's obviously a different group of people from the Afghans who are now applying um, for humanitarian parole. Um, but the, the reason for that is that the U.S. government had occupied Afghanistan for 20 years and had a presence uh, there. Um, there obviously was no evacuation from Ukraine because the U.S. government was not in Ukraine. It was not occupying Ukraine. So I, uh, there doesn't seem to be any real reason to compare the evacuation of Afghans to this parole program that they created um, for Ukrainians. And these 
these two groups of people are not in competition with each other. There, there's no, uh, there's no reason that evacuating uh, seventy thousand Afghans last August should imply that we are going to deny humanitarian parole applications from Afghans a year from then. Uh, the the Biden administration made a commitment to at-risk Afghans uh, that was far broader than than the folks that were evacuated. So I, I just reject any efforts uh, by the administration to suggest that they uh, fulfilled their obligations and no longer have humanitarian responsibilities towards Afghans. When you look closely as well in comparison here, for humanitarian parole, applicants often need to prove that they were target uh, the target of violence, which is very different for Afghans and Ukrainians, Right. Right. Uh, and especially in the in the Afghanistan context, the, the Biden administration has said that if you are still in Afghanistan, they simply will not process your application. So uh, in order because there's a lack of consular presence in Afghanistan. Um, so in order to uh, to apply and be approved for humanitarian parole, Afghans first have to leave and go somewhere else. Uh, and then the administration took the further step of saying that this this requirement that you be under threat uh, needs to be a it needs to be individual. It cannot just be general. The Taliban wants to kill me because of my because I'm who, who I am. It has to be specific to you as an individual, and uh, that it has to be. It has to be present with you in the country you're now residing in. So it wasn't enough to just say the Taliban was going to kill me in Afghanistan. If you're now in Pakistan, you have to show that there's a threat to you in Pakistan. Uh, for Ukrainians, there was no such requirement at all. The the Biden administration simply uh, asserted and, and takes for granted that if you are Ukrainian and you were in Ukraine, the Russian invasion uh, was sufficient to, to make you threatened. So, so again, this is and this is completely in the the discretion of the administration, uh, the the threat requirement for Afghans is much, much higher than that for Ukrainians. So what are your thoughts, Adam? Why do you think the process for humanitarian parole hasn't been as streamlined for Afghans? Well, I mean, it's I, I can't look inside people's uh, hearts and brains, uh, but I, I think it, it, it seems it seems like this is a continuation of a, a very long history of U.S. immigration restrictions being applied uh, from a place of, of xenophobia, of, of racism, and especially in the recent past of, of Islamophobia. Um, you know, I, I hate to say that, but uh, if, the if the administration has a better reason to to justify its actions and to explain its policies, uh, it's it's not a justification that they've offered. So um, I, I think it's really difficult to look at this asymmetrical situation and and not see the ways um, that that xenophobia are are informing these these different policies. If, if there's another reason, I, I haven't heard it from the administration. You know, at the end of the day, two years just seems like a very short time to be allowed to stay here in the U.S. Given just the sheer magnitude of violence and, and devastation that each of those countries is facing right now. So I, I wonder if you think it might be extended. And, and what happens after the two years? Well, the hope the hope would be that uh, that especially in the Afghan context, there is uh, a bill currently in Congress that, that we have advocated for, uh, for for the last year called the Afghan Adjustment Act that would essentially provide uh, a pathway to uh, allow these Afghans in the U.S. to apply for green cards. Uh, this would be similar to, to 
other legislation in the past, such as the Cuban Adjustment Act. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is something the U.S. has done before, where the, the parole authority is used in an emergency situation to get folks into the country, uh, and then Congress provides a pathway to status uh, for these people. Um, the alternative, if, if Congress just does nothing, uh, the, uh, the Afghans and Ukrainians um, can apply, they can always file for asylum. So the, I think the end result of this, you know, temporary authorization to be in the U.S., if if conditions don't improve in Afghanistan uh, or Ukraine, is going to be uh, a big influx of asylum applications. And I, I don't think anybody that does not benefit anyone to have, you know, tens of thousands of Afghans uh, who nobody nobody questions their credible fear of, of being sent back to Afghanistan. Uh, and they uh, it, it also wouldn't benefit the folks already in the asylum backlog, which I think is 400,000-something cases, yeah. uh, there would just be a tremendous waste of, of government time and resources in addition to, to making life harder on these Afghan refugees and, and already existing asylum seekers. So hopefully Congress will, will prevent that from becoming a huge problem. We'll have to leave it there. That was Adam Bates, who's Policy Counsel for International Refugee Assistance Project. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.